0: The talk tonight is about one of the most kind of central facets of evolving consciousness, which really is emerging from a trance where we're living in a contracted identity. That on this path of awakening, what's really happening is we're waking up out of a a small or confined or limited sense of who we are. So I'll talk about that in a way. And just to start with the word trance itself. Um, When we're in a trance, if we're suffering, first of all, we're in a trance. If you're suffering, you're in a trance. And what that means is your reality has in some way been contorted. You're in some way in a narrowed version of reality that's somewhat distorted. And there's a fixation going on. The mind is fixated in some fear-based way And then it plays out in how you're thinking and feeling and behaving. That's trance. The mind is contracted. When we're in trance, we're fixated basically on something's going to go wrong, the sense that something is about to go wrong or already going wrong. It's the flip side of that, which is something's missing. Like right now is not full or complete or okay. Those are the two versions that the Buddha described eloquently in terms of grasping an aversion. So what happens is that because we're feeling something's wrong or missing, we're in control mode. In some way, when we're in a trance, we're trying to control ourselves, we're trying to control the people around us, we're trying to control situations. It's not just letting be. We're in a control mode. I remember uh, someone sent me this once. Carol Liefer wrote... Whenever I travel, I like to keep the seat next to me empty. I found a great way to do it. When someone walks down the aisle and says to you, is someone sitting there? Just say, no one except the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Control. (laughs) So some of the signs of being in trance, and we'll go into this more fully, but some of the signs are that we get mentally lost in thought and obsessed with thoughts. Our emotions are in some way possessed by anger, our fear, our depression, and our behavior is compulsive. Our behavior is compulsive. When we're in trance, our awareness is identified with a sliver of reality, which means major dimensions of life are cut out off. We're not in awareness. And often what's cut off is we're not aware of our body. We kind of disconnect from a feeling of inhabiting a body, or else we're not aware of some difficult feelings like loneliness or shame or fear. We're kind of cut off from that. So as parts of our experience might be that we're not aware that we're believing something really painful. So these are signs. The most basic sense of being in a trance is that our identity is that we're a separate, deficient, and usually lonely self. That's the the flag. A story, and if you were here over the last, maybe year and a half ago, you might remember this, that I I love to reflect on and I love to bring, bring into talks when I can a woman, a young girl actually named Senjo. And she's uh, has an older sister who with her mother in some tragedy died. And so she's living alone with her father. And then she, as she grows up, she plays a lot with a young boy named Ocho. And over time, over the years of being playmates, they fall in love. And, and her father kind of encouraged it. He used to laugh and say, you know, you'll make a good marriage someday when you grow up, jokingly. But they believed him and Over time, their love deepened. But because Senjo was very beautiful, uh, there were a lot of suitors who came to seek her hand. And finally, her father called her into their small house and said to her, "Um, you know, I've made a fine match for you, a a fine young fellow from a nearby village, several villages over, son of a a very good family. He tells her about it and she falls into a real depression and um, gets cast down. And when the word got passed around the village and got to Ocho, he heard it and his breath stopped and his heart broke. So he could hardly speak. That very night, he packs a few things, goes down to the river, takes a small rowboat and he gets in and he's going to leave the town forever. But as he's uh, about to go in the moonlight at the edge of the river, he sees a shadowy form and it's Senjo and she's running towards him calling towards him and she said she could feel him leaving she said I couldn't live without you so she gets into the boat and they go down the river they finally stop and they get a plot of land and make a garden and work the fields build a house have two children five years pass and one day Ojo comes in and he sees Senjo sitting at the table a tear rolling down her cheek why are you crying he asks. I miss my father. I love him so very much and he's my only family. And then Ocho confessed that he too was lonely for, for the village. And he says, let's go back. Maybe they'll take us in. Maybe your father will take us in. So they get in a rowboat and they row upstream and, and arrive at their village around dusk. And they land at the dock near Sanjo's house. And Ocho decides he better go first. So he goes to the door and he knocks and um, Sancho's father answers and he says, What do you want? And uh, Ojo says, Oh, father, I brought your daughter back with two fine grandchildren. Please forgive us for running away. And the father looks back at him with cold eyes, astounded and angry. He says, I don't know what girl you're talking about. Since the night you ran away, my daughter has been sick in bed and unable to speak. Ocho says, no, no, she's, she's in the boat with your two grandchildren. Believe me, father. He says, absolutely not. But he sends a servant to see what's what, uh, in the boat. And the servant goes, and sure enough, there was Sanjo with the two young children. So he comes running back to the house and says to the father, yes, she's there with two children, and she's on her way up to the house. His, the father shook his head no, and he strides into the bedroom where Sanjo was lying and said, Ocho's come back with another Sanjo and your two children and her eyes opened in a new way that they had not for five years and she stood up as if walking in a dream and walked out the door where her father followed her and down the road and from the dock came the other Sanjo with the two children and the two Sanjos embraced one another and became one so they returned to her father's house and now formed a full and loving family. The two Sandras came together and embraced, and she was free to live fully and to love fully. So this is an old and traditional Zen story, and it's a story of many levels, a story of a broken heart and of grave choices and levels of exile And in a deep way, it's a story of the splitting in our own being when we're not able to handle what's there, the ways that we push away parts of our being, parts of our wholeness. This is trance. To me, it's a really um, perfect metaphor of how trance happens, that um, we are moving through our life and... uh, The circumstances of this world, whether it's our parents or others, the culture, are such that we can't stay whole. We have to push away parts of our being. We can't open to them. They're too intense, too passionate, too painful, whatever it is. So we get cut off. We get cut off from our body where the aliveness is. We cut off from our feelings. We're not aware of what we're believing sometimes so who are we? You know, when we're, when we're narrowed, the sense of the self, that who we are, becomes very, very confined. And when we lose contact with wholeness, when we lose contact with the fullness of who we are, then the pain of separation leads us to getting addicted. We try to grasp onto things to feel better, grasp onto food, Grasp on to drugs, grasp on to another person. We get addicted. The pain of separation and the fear that's there of a separate self leads to violence. Others become threatening, others become bad. You can see it individually. The more the sense of separateness, the more the addictiveness, and the more the violence. And often the violence is directed inward. And we can see it in our culture. And I bring this in today just because of the, the recent sorrow, the collective sense of sorrow in our culture that really has followed on the heels of this attack in Arizona and Gabriel Gifford's wounded, six people dead. And we know it, we feel it collectively, that there's a dis-ease in the culture. And yes, there's a dis-ease in a single individual that leads to acting out in that way. And there's an atmosphere in the culture we know is toxic, where there's, out of that sense of separateness, there's a bad other. And then the kind of discourse that's so violent. There's an atmosphere that we're living in, and then that that invites the use of guns that are designed to kill multiple humans. There's an environment that is coming out of this trance of separation and it's thick. So the healing of the trance, the healing of the trance, how to awaken consciousness, how to awaken consciousness in a societal way, you know, on one level it's, you know, don't make guns accessible, but on a deeper way It has to do with communicating, that until we get to know each other, and until those that consider themselves enemies have some mindful communication, until we can see each other as real humans, we'll be unreal others, and then there's the violation, the violence. But I'd like to talk about it on the individual level. How do we wake up from this trance of separation that each of us, unless we're free, unless we're liberated, we live in a lot. A sense of me in here and a world out there and having to present and protect and defend and all that we live in, the stories of a self that's not okay. The healing of the trance is in bringing a mindful attention to our life that's right here. We have pushed away parts of ourselves. The healing is in including what we've pushed away. Carl Jung says that our suffering comes from the unseen, unfelt parts of our psyche, and the healing comes as we begin, as as Senjo did, to embrace what we have split off from. So in a big way, this model of transformation is sometimes described as the perennial philosophy. And and I find it a really useful model of development where really we're opening to increasing levels of wholeness. And each stage of development encompasses the prior stage. um, And It integrates it, and so we open to more and more enlarged sense of identity. So this is the spectrum of development we're all on. You can see it in the lifespan of an individual that we start in the identities with the body, with the sensate body. Okay, and then there starts to be different types of feelings going on and then we're a feeling being with a body that's part of us and then we start having you know more full-blown emotions and then we start having uh, thoughts and then we're a thinking being that includes this bodily self and this feeling self and then we start sensing consciousness itself awareness And then our identity enlarges, so we're resting in an awareness that includes this body and these feelings and these thoughts. What happens when we don't keep waking up to these larger levels of wholeness, we get arrested. We get arrested in a smaller identity, when there's a lot of fear, a lot of craving, a lot of unmet needs, rather than opening to the awareness that includes the feelings and the thoughts, we stay fixated. We stay smaller. So we explore tonight, how do we wake up out of our fixations? When we've gotten afraid, when there's been unmet needs, and we get hooked, how do we bring mindful awareness in a way that wakes us up? And we know there's different ways that we get hooked. We know that uh, we get hooked on fears of failure, that there's this background sense, I'm going to blow it, I'm going to fail. We get hooked on fears of rejection, that people aren't going to like us or include us. We get hooked on fears of loss around the corner, something that'll be too much to handle. And then, rather than resting in awareness and saying, oh, this is fear occurring in awareness, our identity becomes i'm the self that is defending is controlling is protecting that's our sense of who we are same thing happens with with when we get angry when we fear loss and then we get angry and blame others we blame the person who's threatening us we blame ourselves in some way we're caught in the sense of On the angry, defended self. And it happens very early on. There's this one little story. A boy announces proudly, well, I'm going to, to his father, I'm going to marry grandma. The father says gently, well, son, you can't do that. Children don't marry grandparents. Why not? You married my mom, so I'm going to marry yours. (laughs) (laughs) So we get identified with the angry self, the vengeful self. Then there's the wanting self. And how many of us, don't know that one where we're wanting a different partner or a partner to change or we want to get thinner or we want our health back or we want to achieve something. Now, I'm not talking about healthy desire. I'm talking about when we get fixated and our whole sense of who we are becomes a self that's wanting something to happen a certain way. With each, whether it's strong wanting or whether it's a lot of fear we are living in an identity that has shrunk, has contracted. So the healing of mindfulness, and I wanna explore this and begin by saying that um, there's a very brief but important quote from Viktor Frankl, and he says, between the stimulus and the response, there is a space and in that space lies our power and our freedom. Now this is, this is the gist of where we move from being in trance, being the fearful self, reacting, lashing out, whatever it is, to freedom. Between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies our power and our freedom. So the pathway is to begin to notice where we get stuck. And you'll notice it because you'll either be obsessing or possessed by a strong emotion or acting out. And then, because we want freedom, to pause. Because in that pause, there's a space. Now I'll give you an example, because this is where we can use the acronym RAIN to help us to step out of a small identity. What if Sanjo had had a meditation practice? Okay, so let's go back to the story again. So here she is. First, she's fixated on wanting Ocho, right? And then she gets split. Part of her is really fixated in a kind of grief or a loss. And part of her is fixated in a... And you could tell when you heard the description of her moving down the river that she was in a trance that was mechanical and numb. She was disconnected. So she's either kind of disconnected and mechanical or in a depression. So what if she had had a practice? So first, she would have noticed distress. You know, life isn't going the way I want it. And then she would have started doing the RAIN. Okay, recognize and allow that, let's pause. You know, instead of doing this split where we go off and get mechanical or we go get depressed and we can't even move, let's begin to investigate. So first, recognize and allow it, okay? Distressed, pause. That's the R and the A. Recognize and allow what's here, pause. And then begin to investigate. And this is where mindfulness has an interest. What's really going on? Wanting. I want something that really matters to me. Okay. Wanting. Wanting. She might investigate and find guilt. I feel too guilty to, um, to go after what I want. Maybe that's when she's down the river. Guilt. Guilt. Okay. So she stays with that some. Or she might find that she's caught in deep grief and starts exploring that. Either whatever particular strong emotion, the eye of rain is to investigate, to get to know, to pay attention with an intimate quality of presence. So the eye is a double eye investigate with an intimate quality of presence. If Sanjo had been able to pause at any of these junctures with the grief, with the guilt, the depression with the wanting she would have come into that space that Frankl talks about where she'd have more choice in between the stimulus and the response there is a space she would have found self compassion and she would have found wisdom and that leads to the end of rain she rather than being identified with the self that had a flea leave and hide and cut off or the self that had to go into bed and just kind of lock into depression she would have been able to act she would have never say this matters to me I'm not going to marry them and I'm going to marry or she would have in some way been able to communicate rather than split off For most of us, and by the way, I'm very aware that she was in a society and a culture that might have made it very difficult for her to say, hey, dad, uh -uh, not him, him, you know, that might have... But we're talking, this is metaphorical here, okay? We're talking about us in a totally liberated free culture. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not trying to pretend it's easy, but what I am saying is that we spend many moments in a kind of trance where we keep being triggered and there's no pause and out of fear we live our life and if you reflect on today yesterday the day before you might sense how many moments of what you did in some way was coming out of a should that felt dutiful rather than the pause and saying well what really is right right now I was coming out of an anxiety of not okay if I don't get this done and this done? Shoulds, anxieties. Was coming out of a kind of restlessness that needed to have something and you couldn't just be patient or sit for a moment? How many moments do we tumble into the future because we're just not at ease right here? So the invitation in this path of waking up out of the trance, is to pause and deepen attention. In a very uh, deep way, it's to seek to understand. See what's here with kindness. When we do, in any moment that you pause, and I really invite you to check this out because I sometimes find, if I can just remember for five seconds to just stop the action and just be here. It feels like a whole fresh, spontaneous possibility of the future opens up to me. Just five seconds. If we can stay longer than that, we can begin to untangle tangles and really find freedom. So I'd like to do is take a moment and um, have you practice a bit in this most basic... Um, waking up from the trance. We're going to practice, again, finding the space between the stimulus and response. Because I found if we train on the... If we train when we're not in the thick of it, that we're more um, able to wake up out of our conditioning when we are out in the street, so to speak. Okay? So... Sitting in a way that allows you to be awake and be relaxed, both. And just in this pause right now, sense yourself here. And invite from your consciousness whatever situation in life you know you'd like to have more freedom in you'd like to be more present more spontaneous you'd like to be living from a more whole sense of your being another way of saying this is a situation where you know you're stuck where you kind of get caught in a reactive mode it might be something in a relationship or as soon as that person says something in a certain way your body shifts, contracts, and you then say something in a certain way back. Or it might be a situation at work, the way you go about things. It might be an addictive kind of a reaction. It might be that you're approaching a situation that's frightening and you see how you contract and go into obsessive thinking. it might be where you go into blame. And as with the example of Senjo, just sense where you get tripped off as if you're looking at this like a movie, just stop the frame and just sense where you get tripped off where Senjo entered distress or where she got caught in total depression or where she just disconnected and went mechanical where you get reactive. The R and the A is just to recognize and allow that to be there right now. It's as if you're getting in touch with a part of your life where you go into trance and you're saying, okay, let this be right now. You're creating space. You're beginning to Pause. You've identified the stimulus. You've sensed how it happens for you. Now just pause. Let it be there. So that you can begin to investigate a bit. You can begin to seek understanding. Not trying to change, but to understand. Well, what's going on? As you investigate what's going on, See if you can very intentionally do it with kindness, with an intimate attention. For some people, it helps to investigate, just putting their hand on their heart, so they're just offering a kind of presence to what's going on. For others, it's more of the energetic sense of, okay, being with yourself with kindness. And begin to notice, you might sense, what are you believing when this is going on? Is there some core belief that's really very difficult that you've subscribed to? Maybe you're believing that you're gonna fail or be rejected, or that your life is gonna careen wildly out of control and fall apart. What are you believing? And you might sense the real vulnerability that's there. Can you breathe with and feel the vulnerability that's underneath the reactivity For Sanjo, it would have been the vulnerability of losing what she loved, that fear and pain of losing what she loved. To wake up out of trance is to be bringing this mindful, kind attention to what's going on, just to notice it, what you're believing, what you're feeling, what's your body like when you're going into this reactive trance? as well as you can connect with it when you're in it. And again, it helps to breathe with what you're experiencing. Of course, if it feels at all traumatizing or too much, then shift your attention. No need to go there. But if you can, if you have that capacity to investigate, to feel it, you might sense the need that's in there Often when we reactive, there's a need to feel seen or understood, listened to, cared about. What's the need in you? As you sense the need, you might, in some way, and again, it might be with the hand on the heart, offer to yourself some kindness. See what happens when you intentionally bring kindness to the place that's vulnerable. Just see what happens. And as you pay attention in this way, with interest and care. Just notice the sense of who you are. Notice yourself beginning to rest and attend in a larger space of being. That you're not so much the self in the story, you're not the defended self, or the craving self, or the blaming self, or the wanting self. Rather, in this space... You have the freedom to rest in a larger sense of being. Not identified is the end of rain. Can you sense a little bit less identification? The other way to say the end of rain is natural awareness that you're re-inhabiting your natural awareness. between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies our power and our freedom. If you'd like to open your eyes, please feel free. So tonight we're really talking about the evolution of consciousness, that when we get arrested and reactive, um, we're caught in a smaller sense of identity. And as we deepen our attention, and this really is where you're using mindfulness to, to free up that identification, we begin to inhabit a larger space of being. So now, thus far, we've been talking about how we do that within our own consciousness. What about when it's a relational situation? <coughs> if just How do we begin to work it out in relationship? Because the same way we go into trance, we do the exact same thing. When we are not living from a sense of wholeness, when we see another person, we see what I call the unreal other. When we're stressed, and check this out for yourself, this is what I find for me, find when I'm working with people. When we're stressed, everybody we encounter fits into one of three categories. I'm saying when we're reactively stressed. They're either somebody that's an obstacle and causing trouble and there's aversion towards them, Are there somebody that we want something from? They can give us something, care, help, money, time, whatever, approval. There's grasping. Okay, so there's either aversion to people or grasping. Are there somebody that's irrelevant in terms of our our needs for the moment, in which case we ignore them? Now, I'm not being hard on this. It's just this is when we're really caught in stress that, that people are unreal others that are in some way there to satisfy our agenda. They're obstructing our agenda, but we're not with them in an open-hearted, full presence. There's a sense of there's not enough time to do that, okay? So we can sense it. And and in particular, we can, for many people, there's a sense of really that, you know, when somebody is um, not satisfying our agenda, they are in the way. I remember reading this about um, former Postmaster General, J. Edward Day, and he wrote in a, one of his books an ingenious way to stop long-winded telephone callers. Day suggests you hang up while you are talking. <laughs> he says the other party will think you were accidentally cut off because no one would hang up on their own voice. <laughs> so it's a little, it's a little bit of a kind of a, a playful one, but. Don't we all have strategies? I mean, every one of us has strategies to kind of control what's going on with other people. And when we're in our sliver of reality, we're not seeing the wholeness of who's there. Uh, One radio show uh, was on intimate relationships and the guest was talking about what women are looking for. Here's what they said. Someone who can listen well, someone who is intellectually stimulating and funny, someone who is nurturing and supportive, someone who is physically attractive, and there to be no way that the four of them would ever meet. (laughs) So how do we work with what comes up in relationships is exactly the same. We bring rain. There's a stimulus and a response, and we pause. We pause. And I would say if there's anything that I have most learned in working with relationships that for there to be waking up an evolution of consciousness that we need to seek to understand not to change. That when we're trying to wake up in a relationship it's about understanding what's going on inside us and what's going on inside the other person not trying to change someone because then we can't understand So for one friend um, asked me with her partner, how do I embrace the part of him that judges me? And she went on to say, you know, he's always judging me for being messy, for how I drive, for being disorganized, how I put the dishes into the dishwasher, everything. Little things, big things. And so what I said to her is don't try to embrace that at first. Seek to understand can you seek to understand without trying to change it? Just like interview him, try to understand. So she went ahead and interviewed him. And he talked about what it was like to grow up in a family of five kids, a chaotic home life. His father drank a lot. His mother was bouncing off the walls. There was no quiet corner. It was chaos. And in some way, um, he described that when... It was when she was messy, it just tripped off this fear that their life was going to careen out of control or it was out of control, and it was completely unsafe in a way, like he was completely discombobulated and um, couldn 't relax her being messy he couldn 't relax so to say to you, they have continued to um, to negotiate it, but for him having her understand that was a huge part of what created an environment where they could negotiate even. It was a big deal. Um, This is Pema Chodron. She says, we don't set out to save the world. We set out to wonder how other people are doing and to reflect on how our actions affect other people's hearts. I'm going to read that again. We don't set out to save the world, okay? We set out to wonder how other people are doing and to reflect how our actions affect other people's hearts. I really love that. I think it it says so beautifully that um, we're really seeking to understand, you know, what is it like for this other person? How, How do my actions affect you, you know? Now, sometimes when I talk about this, people will ask me if there's just, does that mean they're supposed to just stuff their knees and try to be mindful and understanding and compassion to other person when the other person's really treating them in a, in a weird way? And, and I just want to say no, um, especially if there's abuse going on. We do whatever we need to do to take care of ourselves. But for us to begin to lean more in the direction of seeking to understand rather than seeking to change is like that pause that Frankel described that gives the possibility of real freedom and healing. Rain goes in all directions when we're in relationship. We're in an ideal relationship, we bring rain inwardly and we bring rain to what's going on with the other person. And when I say rain, again, to translate, we bring a mindful investigation and an intimate attention to both ourselves, to the other, to what's happening between us. And there are times the other person is not capable of bringing that attention to what's going on. And so if it turns out that you have that motivation and capacity to pause a little bit more than someone else, And to start the inquiry, well, what's really going on for you? And maybe to hold a space, consider it a blessing. I mean, it's it's a gift to your own soul if you can be the one to pause and start checking in to yourself and to another person. And... Always it'll change something in the sense of it'll transform the dynamic. It may not radically change what's going on, the dance, but on some level you're more free and that always ripples out. The most challenging thing in the world and the most beautiful is to begin to look through another person's eyes. I want to read you a very short verse from Naomi Nye it's one of my favorite poets before you learn the tender gravity of kindness you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road you must see how this could be you how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive So again, when we sense this evolution in consciousness, we're sensing this capacity, this growing capacity that each of us has to step out of our conditioned reactivity, to pause, and to bring mindfulness to what's happening. Because in the moment, in any moment of mindfulness, in the moment of seeing what's going on, the identification is loosened and you become that awareness that's noticing. You're not as hitched to the fear or the grasping, you're resting more in a larger sense of being, any moment of mindfulness. Now the expression of that mindfulness, of of that enlarged sense of identity is a growing experience of love. When we understand there's love, that is the expression. We're moving from this cramped world of self-preoccupation and reactivity to this more expansive sense of we. It's from this kind of fixation of me and what I need and what's wrong with me and what's wrong with you for treating, to this space that is holding the whole picture to more wholeness. And I'd like to just, uh, the last part of this exploration of this waking up from trance, talk about the different ways that that love then expresses. The more we're free from trance, from that preoccupation, the more there's a sense of compassion that we see the suffering that people are in. Rather than seeing that other as an unreal other that's causing trouble, we see vulnerability. I remember Gary Larson, one of Gary Larson's little Cartoons, he has two women behind a locked door and they're peeping through a window at a monster on a doorstep. One saying, well, yes, Edna, it is a giant, hideous insect, but maybe it's a giant, hideous insect in need of our help. <laughs> it's sweet. So one, when we step out of a small identity, we can see suffering, see vulnerability. When we step out of a small sense of identity, we can see goodness. When we're stressed, and when we're tumbling into the future trying to get things done, and when we're feeling threatened, we cannot see the beauty and goodness that's looking out at us. We just can't. Thomas Merton said, saints are what they are, not because their sanctity makes them admirable to others, but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible for them to admire everyone else. So there's the sense of compassion, there's appreciation, and then there's this um, generosity of spirit that flows because there's not a feeling of having to hold on to me and mine and what I need and what I want. i share with you one of my favorite stories, uh, an eight-year-old boy had a younger sister who was dying of leukemia. And he was told that without a blood transfusion, she would die. And his parents explained to the boy that his blood was probably compatible with hers. And if so, he could be the blood donor. So they asked him if he, if they could test his blood and he said, sure. And so they did and it was a good match. And then they asked if he would give his sister a pint of blood and that It could be her only chance of living, and he said he'd have to think about it overnight. The next day, he went to his parents and said he was willing to donate the blood. So they took him to the hospital where he was put on a gurney beside his six-year-old sister, and both of them were hooked up to IVs. A nurse withdrew a pint of blood from the boy, which was then put into the girl's IV. The boy lay on his gurney in silence while the blood dripped into a sister until the doctor came over to see how he was doing. Then the boy opened his eyes and asked, "How soon until I start to die?" So I share this with you not because, you know, every child or every anybody can uh, make the decision to give their lives up, but more because it is our capacity. It is our human potential to care and to give in a deeply selfless way. And it comes when our our sense of identity opens up. So we practice, and we practice in this very um, simple way, and we start right where we are. We don't have to start with some great idealistic project what is it tonight or tomorrow for you? You know, where is it tonight or tomorrow that you know you, in some way, get small or tight? What if you just chose? And you know, it's not, I find it never helps to go home with this, this huge aspiration that everywhere I get stuck or tight, I'm gonna pause and find the space between, you know, it just, this doesn't work, we're, we're just, <laughs> it just won't work but what does work and this is what's so cool is that you can choose places that you sense this really matters to me you know when I'm with this person I want to see if I can find that space where I can be a little more spontaneous or a little more gentle or a little less judgmental or whatever it is and bring your practice to that and in time you find that the path turns into being this real adventure as you start sensing all these different places where just five seconds gives you access to a little more resourcefulness and if you practice on your own on the sidelines the conditioning starts to loosen there is more freedom we've been really exploring um, what I've been calling the evolution of consciousness this waking up from trance is something that's already happening And we can't will it, but our intention, our sincerity, actually creates an amazing environment for for it to keep unfolding. (coughs) So I'd like to do one final reflection with you. Um, Then we'll close together. One of the ways of waking up is not just to pay attention to where we get stuck, but to pay attention to the moments where there is freedom. There are many moments for all of us, we don't really savor them or rest in them, where we're not so caught in a small identity. There are moments when we see beauty and in that moment of wonder... That sense of tightness of collecting around a central self is softened and opened. There are moments when we're seeing somebody we love—the gleam in their eye or their beauty—and and there's not such a solid sense of self right there. There's an opening. Our moments that we listen to music, our moments that we're carried into humor or whatever it is, playfulness that there's that freedom. So to reflect and get familiar with what's it like when I'm not wanting things to be different? What's it like when I'm not afraid of what's around the corner? For this last reflection, you might sense a relationship in your life where there's love that's, that's very easy for you to connect with. And it might be A relationship with a a friend or a parent or a child, with a teacher, with a healer. Could be a relationship with one of your pets. Could be a relationship with someone who's no longer alive. But the love that's here. Take a moment to bring that being to mind and and invite that being right into the room so you just really feel like you could look into the eyes of that being whether it's a human or a dog or whoever and sense how that being loves you how that being expresses love what is that person or animal (laughs) How does that being express love? What's the look in the eye? What is it you appreciate about this being? The humor, the brightness, the goodness, the warmth. What is it you appreciate? Feel that being appreciating you. So you can sense that shared space of heart that's beyond you and me. It's just that sense of we. It's a field. And see if you can just relax and just be that field of loving presence. and sense who you are when you're resting in that. You might sense that field of loving presence, that light, that consciousness that's there that shines through each being when they're awake and open and aware. You might sense that everyone in this room, that same field of light of consciousness is living through each of us. Everyone you've seen today, all that are here, all who you will meet, It's possible to feel the uniqueness and this one spirit shining through. The same spirit that is awake and living and listening right now in you and caring. These are the words of Hafiz. I have learned so much from God that I can no longer call myself a Christian, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Jew. The truth has shared so much of itself with me that I can no longer call myself a man, a woman, an angel, or even a pure soul. Love has befriended Hafiz so completely It has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and image my mind has ever known. May we realize and trust the loving presence that is our deepest nature. May our lives be an expression of that loving presence. Namaste. The talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule, or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, our IMCW site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much.